0: Morning. morning. Happy New Year everyone. You all look just a little bit thinner. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn in them to Mark chapter 9, 14 through 25. Mark chapter 9, 14 through 25. We're going to be uh, reading the story When Jesus heals a boy with an unclean spirit. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, your word is mighty. It is the power in our lives. It is the power in this pulpit. It is the power in this church. Working in tandem with the Holy Spirit, it is the very source of the Christian life. There is no Christian life outside of the word and the spirit. None of the methods. None of the ministry that we put in to practice all on our own will ever do anything apart from the Word and the Spirit. And so we ask that we today might understand the Word and that the Spirit might give us the ability to understand the Word and then to put that Word into practice in our lives. May you, Holy Spirit, make manifest the Word today in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years, of, several years ago, my brother and his wife, those of you who don't know David and Lynn, uh, they are a funny, funny couple. That's all I can say about them. And several years ago, they were at home one evening, and it was early, uh, actually early in the morning, about 2 o'clock in the morning, and they heard someone in their shed Now, if they hear something going on in their shed in Tennessee, they just assume it's an animal. But when you live in Miami, you assume you're getting robbed. They had been robbed multiple times. Well, they heard someone in their shed, and they got up, and they both were going to go. David was going to go, but Lynn, if you know anything about her, she's tough, and she says, I'm going with you. So David says, all right. He grabs a baseball bat. And he gives Lynn a shotgun. True story. And he says to her before they go out, I'm giving you the shotgun. It's unloaded. Just point it at them. That's all you need to do. They're going to assume it's loaded. He says, what are you giving me an unloaded gun for? He says, just do what I tell you to do. So they walk out there and David's got his baseball bat. And they're getting up to the shed. And right as they get to the shed, David is going to put his hands on the handle and open up the door. And he wants Lynn to point that gun in there and he's going to hold the bat. And he, right before he grabs the handle, he turns around and looks at Lynn... And says, are you ready? And sees Lynn standing there holding the barrel of the shotgun like this. And he says, what are you doing? She said, you gave me an unloaded gun. I'm at least going to hit him with it. Christians are like that. When we're told to follow God, we always try our own human effort to improve the situation. All in our own effort, we try to make it better. If you have your Bibles, look at them. Verse 14 in Mark chapter 9. We're going to read through the passage this morning. And we're going to talk, we're going to look at it in four scenes. It was David Garland, a Mark Scholar who uh, divided this passage up into four scenes. I saw this to be very helpful. I'm going to use his scenes. And uh, it's clearly that there are four scenes going on here. But I want to show you something about human nature, about churches, about shepherds. About sheep. I want to show you something that I believe plagues us today. And has been a reality in the church even since its inception. Namely, that when it comes down to truly trusting on Christ and his word. We are found most often to be a faithless generation. I wish that Bible translations would leave a gap between that sentence and the rest of it. That's so much of us, so many of us in our heart, constantly our posture before God is one that says, if you can... Do this thing for us, God. And if we could just hear the words of the Messiah and his rebuke to us, which is, If I can? What do you mean, if I can? To whom are you speaking? To some man? To some teacher? Or are you speaking to the God of heaven and earth? In whom and through whom all things hold together. And by the word, the power of his word, all things were made. What is death and life to him? It is nothing for him to give. Bones that are dried and very, very dried. New flesh. And breathe into them a spirit of life. When it was him who created the world from nothing. But by the word of his power. If I can. Don't miss this. You ought to underline it in red. There is, Jesus is at this point indignant. If I can, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. You know, we make a big emphasis on that next part and fail to emphasize the first part. It is the indignant Christ who places our minds in the right context to those who believe that the Messiah is God in the flesh. All things are possible. Why? Because they recognize that all things are made All things are held together by Christ. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Jesus doesn't simply treat the symptoms, he heals the disease. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. You know, we have a tendency today to read this passage and to think that the person who's in the most trouble is the demon-possessed boy. Notice that Jesus never rebukes the boy. Not once does Jesus rebuke the boy. He rebukes first the faithless generation. Then the demon. The utterly helpless boy is utterly helpless. Jesus is saying to the entire crowd, really, really, you are all utterly helpless without me. Let's look at this. I want to break this up into the four scenes. Scene 1, Mark nine fourteen through 19. The passage begins right after Jesus, Peter, James, and John have just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration where they beheld the glory of Christ. A real privilege for only three disciples to see Jesus clothed in white. To see Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. To hear the word, the very voice of God out of the cloud, say, This is my son. Obey him. Listen to him. Mark tells us that even there, that Elijah and Moses suddenly appeared on the mountain with the now transfigured Christ. It must have been a scene. Jesus in his glory and Elijah and Moses... This was to show that Christ was the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. Moses spoke in Deuteronomy 17 of a prophet who was to come who was greater than him. It was Elijah. Who was to prepare the way of the Lord. And it is John the Baptist who takes on that role as Elijah. Who prepares the way of the Lord. The prophet who comes to finally and firmly give to the nations the life. That could never be produced by the stone tablet. But must be produced by the spirit. Jesus is the fulfilled promise. The Messiah of the the Old Testament. Mark tells us that at that moment a voice came out of a cloud. It was the very voice of the Father who declared that Jesus was his son and that all men should listen to him. But the word listen in the Greek never means hear with your ears. It means yes, hear with your ears, but believe with your heart. Lynn should have held that gun up. Believe with your heart. We have a rule in our house. Every gun is loaded. We also have another rule. Every pond or lake in Florida has an alligator in it. People always say, no, that one doesn't have an alligator in it. Have you gone down below to see? Then you better treat it like there's one in there. Because guess what? If it is, you're going to lose that battle. But we just don't trust Jesus said his word, and Jesus, the, the very voice of the Father says to these men on that mountain, he's not talking to Moses, he's not talking to Elijah. They know he's saying to the men, This is my son. Listen to him. Heed his word. Trust in his word. Everything that he says about himself, everything that you've seen, trust on him. For what? For everything. This experience that absolutely terrified Peter and James and John did so to the point of provoking a senseless question about setting a a tent for Elijah and Moses. The scripture tells us that they were so scared that they asked God, they asked if they could set up a tent for these men. I love it. I love the scene. Imagine the audacity. God has shown dead men who are dead to be alive. He has glorified Christ in their presence. And man is asking, what can I do to make this better? Nothing. There's nothing you can do. Bring God a tent? Does God need your tents? Heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. And you're going to provide a tent? (laughs) Tents are terrible shelters. I went fishing with Glenn this week. And Glenn and Josiah, one of our friends, was talking about, they were talking about camping in a tent. And I thought to myself, ain't no way. How is a piece of thin material going to protect me from an alligator or a bear or a Florida panther in the middle of the Everglades? Give me a cabin. Give me a door lock. And give me internet. And I'll be fine. But what what is a tent going to do? God doesn't need you. And their concern shows the very disease That plagues the disciples throughout their entire ministry with Christ. And is certainly in the church by and large today. Namely the assumption that God needs something from us. That he needs our help. There are all these books out today by church growth experts. One of them recently was titled, Change or Die. I thought to myself, the title of that book has not read the Bible. Whoever the author is, it shows that the title of that book is not in agreement with Scripture. Since Jesus said to his disciples, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. It will never die. Now the church may need to repent, but change... And of course, chapter 1 was get rid of the old morality, so on and so forth. If you want to reach this generation, you can't be prude in your sex life. You can't be prude about that. Listen, that hasn't changed. Jesus still expects sexual purity with your mind with your body. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Better that you go into heaven, maimed, than enter your entire body into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Better that you go into heaven, maimed, than that you enter whole into hell. He's still. That word is still for his people today. Coming down from the mountain, Now, in our passage, Jesus and this special group of disciples come upon a heated debate between the disciples, the scribes, and the crowds. And you can imagine, just for a moment, the hysteria of a father who has seen his son oppressed by an unclean spirit his entire life has come to the one group who is known to be able to heal Sick people and cast out demons. And he gets there and they don't deliver on their word. I mean, can, can you imagine that? Put yourself in that man's shoes for a moment. Imagine that was your child Imagine that you had tried everything, that you had taken every dose, every pill. You had been to shamans. You had been to every priest. You did anything and everything to heal your child. And there's a group of people who are known to be able to deliver unclean spirits out of people. And you would sell everything you had to heal that baby. And you get there and they fail. And what are they arguing about? Well, the scribes believed upon the Jewish traditions that you had to follow certain practices in order to get these demon-possessed people or get these demons out of demon-oppressed people. And so... One of the things, one of the traditions was that Solomon had certain wisdom and certain incantation and certain medicines that could do this. And the scribes are arguing, certainly with the disciples. If you had just done it this way, you would have saved him. And really, for all of us, that, that thing is competing all the time with our hearts. It, which one is it? Wh- which is the religion that, that's going to get us from point A to point B? Is it Islam? Uh, is it Christianity? Uh, maybe it's Tony Robbins. Uh, power of Positive Thinking with, uh, who's the guy, Power of Positive Thinking? Dale Carnegie. No, that's win friends and influence people. But, but, but we're looking for a guru. We're looking for somebody to solve our problem. And they're debating this. And Jesus' disciples, they don't know. They've been able to do this and now all of a sudden they can't. <clears throat> We know that they're not sure why this happened because at the very end they asked Jesus, what did we do wrong? This was a very serious scene. The scribes want to debate methodology. Appealing to Jewish traditions that taught of Solomon's wisdom and rituals and incantations that were the only way to release the boy from the unclean spirit. The disciples were adding to the confusion, claiming to be able to cast out demons and to heal in the name of Jesus, all the while falling flat when they were called upon in a moment of crisis. Even the apostles who were there in the moment of Christ's transfiguration are still without the faith that is to characterize a true disciple of Christ. You've got one group who doesn't know the truth and they're telling us to do it this way. Another group that sees that it didn't happen the way they thought it should have happened based upon their methodology. I mean, after all, they're on Jesus' team. And then you have the very disciples who still don't understand, even in the Mount of Transfiguration. And it's here that provokes this lament from Jesus Christ. Oh, faithless generation!" How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. The crowd, the scribes, the apostles, even the special group of apostles who were there on the Mount of Transfiguration is this faithless generation. The incapability of those around Christ to grasp who he was, was exasperating to the Savior. This is not to say that no one understood truly who Christ was, but that all men had yet to understand fully who Christ was. Remember that when Jesus, in this very same gospel, it has already happened in this very same chapter. Jesus asked, in the chapter before, Jesus asked Peter, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And when Peter answers, he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's right. He understands the language. He speaks the Christian language. We call it Christianese. You know what Christianese is? How are you doing this morning? Oh, I'm blessed and highly favored. Wow. Sheesh, I'm just... I, I, I think I'm blessed and highly favored. I mean... I've been in traffic for 50 minutes and I've been cussing the whole way, but my tire was flat this morning. Oh, I'm blessed and highly favored. You know Christianese. We use words like discipleship. What does that mean? Define that for me. Christianese. Jesus says to Peter... In the very next passage, after Peter has proclaimed correctly in perfect Christian ease, "Thou art the Christ, the Son of the Living God," get thee behind thee, me, me, Satan. What? But over here he says the, he says it right. But over here, very, very, very next passage, he's calling him possessed by Satan. Why? Because when Jesus began to teach that the Messiah must suffer and die, Peter took him aside and said, No, Jesus, you didn't get this right. The Messiah is a conquering king, not a suffering servant. And Jesus responds in saying, I'm paraphrasing there, he responds in saying, Get thee behind Satan. See, he, he trusted truly. He had the right word, but he didn't understand fully. There was a a need, a greater need to know Christ more intimately, to know him fully. He knew the right words, but did he know the master? Christ doesn't need our shelters, nor our arguments about human methodology for producing spiritual things. He is the true God of God, the great I am, the one who made the heavens and the earth, and through whom all things hold together. He is the God of all glory, in whom we must trust for all things. Is this what people see, though, when they come to church? A bunch of religious people arguing about the right way to do things? I don't mean just this church, but I don't mean anything less than this church. I mean the church. When they walk into our midst, is it a bunch of religious people arguing about the right way to do things? If the music were only this way or that way, then the church would grow. If we only used more money this way rather than that way, or if we only did things like they're doing over there rather than the way we're doing things over here, then this church would be exploding with people. We promote ourselves, make church about our methods, all the while neglecting prayer And all the while saying that we need, what we need is not more prayer, but more action. There was this attitude after all of the police-involved shooting of African Americans. There was an attitude, I don't remember the group, the particular group, but they were saying about the church, we don't need prayer, we need action. Really? Let me ask you something. How has your action produced any less shootings? Hmm? Your action is impotent. It is powerless. Don't you ever mock prayer again. You know what is gonna stop racism in this country? Elevating Christ above color. And that's not going to happen by action. Okay, okay. So you find some law that finds a way to suppress racism. And how does that change the heart that still hates the brother of color? You fool. Don't you ever say prayer is useless. Your action has produced Oh, we united, didn't we, real quick, with a movement called Black Lives Matter. And what has it caused? More harm than good. You want to solve the problem? Get in this church, get in your closet on your knees and pray. (laughs) We thought the problem was solved with the Emancipation Proclamation. Has it been? That was action. Has it? Or is racism still alive and well? Don't tell me about action without prayer. Do you trust God in all things? Do you trust Him to produce the thing you can't? Do you ever ask God to do the amazing Oh, ye of little faith. Oh, faithless generation. Get the, get the response that Jesus has about the Christian attitude that doesn't trust him to do only what he can do, which is everything and anything. The church and this country is not in the mess that it's in today because we pray too much. It's in the mess it's in because we don't pray at all. You're still trying to fix your marriage. And you're trying to fix it with everything except being on your knees. Or do you take Jesus at his word? Would Jesus come into our church or our lives and say, Oh, faithless one, you think you can help me out? Would you build a tent? Or would you live in my kingdom? Stop building tents. Live in his kingdom. The church is in the mess that it is today because we have tried methods of ministry rather than total and complete trust in God to give us all things. And I ask you this morning, shepherds and sheep alike, will you be busy arguing over philosophies of ministry, music, and missions, or will you truly trust God for all things? Scene 2, Mark nine twenty through 24 When the demonic spirits encountered the Holy Christ, they could not help but act out. They knew more than any man what it was to fear the King of kings and Lord of lords. We ought to look in this very, it's a very interesting book. One of the themes of the book of Mark that characterizes the gospel is what's called the secret of Mark. Constantly Jesus is doing healings and he says, don't tell anybody. When Jesus comes upon demon-possessed people, the demons begin to proclaim who he is. I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth. Son of God. Jesus has to silence him. God forbid that demons give a better testimony than the church. Now, don't, don't try and explain away the boy's ailment as simply seizures. We do that today. We go to the text, we open up the Bible and we say, he's not really demon possessed. These are just those old people Uh, That's back in the days where every time somebody coughed, they thought it was a demon coming out of their body. That's not what's going on here. Mark won't allow us to have that interpretation. Because the moment, the moment that Jesus starts coming, the demons get restless. (laughs) Have you ever been, I was fishing this week and we caught nothing. I caught one fish, Joe caught another fish. I think my fish was the biggest. Johan? Run tell that. I caught the biggest fish. But one of the things you do when you're fishing is you look for bait fish. Are they scattering? On the top, if if you want the real thing, if you want the bass, watch the top of the water. These little bait fish just go. Pah. They just start scattering. And you know, throw your line in there. And usually you get a bass. You ought to expect that when the Son of God is on earth in physical form, demon activity is coming out of every single well. Say, oh, that's just the old way of thinking. No, it's a unique dispensation. It's a unique 33 years in earth's history. God in the flesh is here. Demons know it. They're scared. They're scattering. And when he comes, they're struggling. He's the king of kings and the lord of lords. And the demons get it. Would that the church would get it. We're so calm with this Jesus guy. We wear t-shirts like Jesus is my homeboy. And he's throwing up two thumbs up. And we laugh about this. But when demons... The scariest thing you can possibly think of saw Jesus coming? They convulse. They beg. You know, they don't do that. They don't do that when you come in the room. Somebody tried to rebuke a demon in the book of Acts. and The demon said to him, Paul, I know. I don't know you. But when Jesus came, the demons quaked. That's what the passage says. Mark personalizes the spirit too by giving it personal features. It says when he, that is the spirit, saw Jesus coming, he immediately convulsed the boy. This was not just ancient eyes seeing a demon behind every bush. But we should expect the very presence of God in, on earth to regurgitate the evil spirits that hide in dark places within this world. And let me tell you something. If you want to see that happen, bring Jesus into the darkest places of your life and your world right now and watch the demons convulse. Take that word of God into that situation that you have. Begin to speak God's word and watch what happens. I've seen it with my very eyes. Demons still shake at the word of God. James says about demons that even demons know who God is and shudder at his very word. Jesus asked the boys, Father, how long has this been going on? But this was to show that the boy had been suffering from birth and that his ailments were well known by all. Uh, Jesus isn't Benny Hinn. This isn't some dude who walked up on the stage who nobody knew or who everybody knew but no one knew he had cancer and Benny Hinn heals it. You notice the scriptures always say he was blind from birth. He had been possessed from birth. Everyone knew it. What is more, we should not miss Mark's ultimate point, which is always to make the stakes as high as he can so as to show how simple it is for Christ to overcome all odds. Remember something? When the odds are against you in your life, when you get the worst news of your life, some of you have sick loved ones right now, and it seems that it could never, they could never be healed. Pray. Pray. And don't stop praying until God gives you an answer. And he'll give you an answer either when they're dead in the casket or when they're living and walking. But don't stop praying. Don't think God can't remove that cancer, can't remove that heart disease, can't heal you, can't heal that dead marriage. Some of you have marriages that you say are D-E-A-D. But you don't have the faith that God wants you to have. The faith that says, God, these odds are impossible. But with you, all things are possible. You can bring back that child from drug addiction. You can do it. You can bring back that child who's in prison and who's gone through life. God, I know you can do it. And I'm waiting on you to do it. I'm going to ask you every night to do it. It's only you who can do it. It won't be your methods. They won't work. Every time some kid gets into something, somebody always says, I'm going to have a come-to-Jesus meeting. Man, listen to me. Do you know how many come-to-Jesus meetings I've had in the last... 10 years of ministry, weeping, where we talk and talk and talk and then no, nothing? You ought to just bring them in and fall down on your knees and begin in tears to plead with God to give them a heart they don't have. The boy's father was weak in faith and he asked Jesus, if you're able... Please heal my son. But the father is not faithless, but at this moment, he actually has more faith than even the disciples ever had. Jesus responds to him rebukingly, saying, if I can... The Father was one of the many faithless generation, one of all who are faithless and yet to trust in Christ for everything. However, what the Father displays is this, that the others didn't, in the truest faith, a faith that could never come out of man, the Father shows an honest confession to God that the very faith God asks for must be produced by God himself. Some of you don't fully trust in Jesus today. Get on your knees and pray, God, give me the faith I don't have. I remember multiple times in my life asking God to take away something that I didn't want to get rid of. Take it away. I can't do it. Smoking was one of them. I'd pray to God, God, I'd finish a cigarette. And I'd say, God, I want to stop smoking. How am to stop smoking. Well, you all are laughing, but I haven't smoked a cigarette in 15 years. And some of you are still trying Nicorette. Maybe you ought to try get down on your knees. Some of you are addicted to marijuana or alcohol or pornography. Okay, well this year, 2019, I'm going to stop doing it. Maybe you ought to get down on your knees and say, God, I don't want to stop doing it. Make me want to stop doing it. Be honest, the Father is honest. I don't believe you. I don't believe, I believe, but but I don't have full belief. Why? He, he just seen the disciples couldn't do it. He's desperate. You hear pastors all the time tell you, wait till you have the faith. If you had the faith, then you'd have the no. Stop leaning on yourself. When pastors and evangelists exhort you to produce in yourself a true faith, they're teaching falsely. Yes, God desires us to be a faithful generation, but the faith that God requires is not within man. Listen to me. God desires you to trust him fully, but I'm telling you right now, you cannot do it. You don't have the ability to do it. you can with your mouth say God give me what I don't have that's that's faith only the faith that acknowledges our total and complete need for God in all things is the faith that God desires Scene 3, 9, 25 through 27, the faithless question that was first asked by the father, if you are able, is now answered, not only for the boy's father, but in the midst of the entire faithless generation. It tells us, Mark tells us that when he saw the crowd coming, then he rebuked. You see, the real person, the the real people who are in need of healing, it's not just the boy, but it's everybody around him with the faithlessness they have. You know, Christians, you do this sometimes. You love to compare your Christian walk with another Christian walk. Well, at least I'm not like that. Huh. So I must, be a, I must be a Christian. My dad used to say it this way. There go I, but by the grace of God. You know, if you have that attitude, you might love on that girl who got pregnant a little bit more. Stop thinking that because you didn't get caught... That you are more chaste than she was. And understand that even if you were chaste, you still need a savior just like she does. Just a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And what we're going to say is, your body, not mine. Paul was the righteous man, and he said, I had to give it all up for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, and having not in myself a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness that comes by faith in the Son of God. The passage tells us that when Jesus saw the crowd coming, he commanded the demon to come out of the boy. Perhaps this was to show that while the possessed child was in danger of earthly fires, the faithless generation was in danger of the fires of hell. Jesus commanded the Spirit to come out, to leave the boy, and never to enter him again. The Lord's command was now given for all to see. And Mark tells us that the crowd thought that the boy was dead, and by the way, he probably was. Some of you say, uh, oh, but it says uh, they thought he was dead." Yeah, but understand, understand the context. What is death when the Savior's standing there? Hmm? What is death when Messiah is there? I think the boy was dead, but it's Jesus who gives us new life. Some of you are dead today in your trespasses and sin. You're dead. But if you want to live and have life, true life, you must call upon the Messiah. He can give that life to your dead bones. What is death to God? When Jesus takes dead men by the hand... And lifts them up by the power of his word. They rise up to live. And they live life as new creatures. This very morning you may be clinging to your faith in Christ Jesus. With everything you have. Or maybe your marriage is failing. And you believe it's dead. Perhaps you're sick. Or a loved one is sick. Maybe you're depressed. And you feel terribly, terribly alone. Maybe you just can't shake some doubt or some addiction. But it's at our weakest and most vulnerable state, when we feel dead, that we realize nothing and no one but God alone is able. God loves the odds he sees in this crowd today. Some of you don't, have, some of you don't think... That your odds are bad enough. But they can get there. Some of you may think that you have it all together. You might be in what D.L. Moody called a resting faith. Some of you are in what D.L. Moody called a struggling faith. Others are in what D.L. Moody called a clinging faith. But every single one of us must rely on Christ for all things. We were talking about this this past week. Having a healthy fear of oneself. You better have a healthy fear that you could be that demon possessed boy. Short of Christ in you, of course. What is it about you that makes you less likely to commit some of the greatest evils and sins that man have ever committed? Have a healthy fear of yourself. One of the prayers that I pray constantly, and I'm saying this so, I'm saying. I don't have a word from the Lord. I, I have a word. I'm, I'm urging you to do this, is to constantly pray, God, keep me. I don't know what's coming next. Keep me. Keep me. I feel, remember, Lord, my, what does the song say? I feel my heart wandering. I'm, I'm prone to leave the God I love. But take my heart, Lord, ever seal it. Seal it for thine courts above Beg God to do, even in your resting moments, even in the moments where you think your life is all together, to keep you. If you're struggling, clinging, resting, it doesn't matter. You must rely completely on the Lord Jesus Christ in all things. Final scene, Mark 28, 9, 28 and 29. says that the disciples return with Jesus... You know, that's an important phrase, that the disciples returned with Jesus. Not only was he mad at them, but they failed to do ministry right. You know, this meant a lot to me. When I read it. Sometimes you, as a pastor, you get back to God and you say, what did I do wrong? I don't, I don't know. What did I do wrong? The disciples, though, returned with Jesus. Praise God. Jesus didn't say, get the heck out of here. You guys are worthless. I'm firing you. I'm kicking you off the team because you couldn't deliver. But they returned to him humbly and asked, what can we do next time? That meant a lot to me. He didn't send them off. Even though they doubted. They were like helpless sheep. They had nowhere else to go. You're failing Jesus right now. You failed Jesus. Somehow, some way, you failed him, and if you haven't, you will. And it's at that time where Satan says, get out of here. You're not of this fold. And you begin to wonder. Say, I, I did some bad things in my life, Pastor. You don't know. If you only knew, you would know I'm not. I, I can't be saved. And you, Satan loves, the the Bible tells us that Satan is an accuser. Johan always reminds me, there's, there's no one more pro-abortion than Satan before the girl goes into the clinic. And no one more pro-life when she comes out. But don't you see that Jesus is a good God? He is plenteous in mercy. You are sheep without a shepherd, and even when you fail, go back to the shepherd. Follow him back to his house and ask, how can I make it different next time? You say, but what if I do it again? Do it again. But what if I fail again? You will. Follow the master. Never stop following the master. If you want to get into heaven, you have to come through him. He is the gate. Jesus doesn't say, you're the perfect sheep. Come on in. You Just ask, am I your shepherd? You're going to fail. And you're going to feel like God couldn't possibly save you. You're going to feel at times like you betrayed your Savior... And like he could never love someone so faithless like you. But the faith that God calls us to have is one that after failure, every time after failure, immediately begins to follow Jesus, seeking his power to give you what you do not have. This morning I want to ask you, what is it in your life that you have yet to give over completely to Christ? They say that most New Year's resolutions end within two weeks of being started. And Christians make resolutions all the time. We sin and we go right back and say, God, we'll never do it again. I'll never do it again. And then we're we're walking in that resolution. We said we'd never do it again. And we're going to do this. And we're going to do that. And we're going to do this. I know these... Fellows who go and get what's called Covenant Eyes, which is a software that should they look at pornography on their computer, it immediately sends an email to everyone they know and love. Man, that's a good idea, right? Pornography is not the issue. It's lust. It's trusting on Methods and man to produce what methods and man cannot. I heard a man who said one time they were having a public forum debate about pornography. One was a Christian, and the Christian was saying, obviously we shouldn't have that up. And someone responded on the panel and said, the person who was promoting pornography, the question was whether or not pornography should be played from these screens in the car. And someone said, if you don't like it, just look away. And the Christian responded in the most Christian way I've ever heard. What if I do? You want to see this become a house of godly people? Pray that God give you what you don't have. Okay, God, if you give me this job, I'll go to church more, and I'll tithe more. But you won't. You know, the problem with church, it's not, it's not always the problem with church. I, and I know some churches get it wrong. But the problem, a lot of times, is you. You love things more than you love to be with God and his people. I know. You say, "How do you know?" I know because I've been there. You guys think I just grew up and I, I went to church? I didn't. When I was in Louisville, there by myself, just me and my wife, there were a lot of Sundays I didn't want to go, and it was easy. But not only that, we think that we need to read self-help, and we lay aside our Bibles. And we expect to find some kind of better life there. We make resolution after resolution and then we immediately fail. But the problem is not the failure but the very attitude that trust in yourself to produce any change in your life whatsoever. Jesus rebuked a faithless generation. In other words, don't go out and be a faithless generation. Be a faithful generation. How do you do that? A faithful generation is this. One that lives on its knees, acknowledges Christ in everything, and even in the very faith that it takes to pray, understands and commits totally and completely to God as the provider. Father, you are the great provider. Here we come with empty hands, fill our hearts with what we do not have, the love of Christ that comes down from above, producing us as your word tells us, I will call for a people, I will pour out my spirit. And Lord, we pray that you might pour out your Holy Spirit today on us, write your laws on our heart, that we might not sin against you. Amen.